This is Archive Atlanta, episode 56, The Herndons. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. So many Atlantans of all genders and races do not know the story of the Herndons who they were, the careers and companies associated with them, and most importantly, the lasting legacy they had in the city. This history is not just about a family. It's about gender, race, slavery, entrepreneurship, modern women, sexuality, and even the civil rights movement. They are my favorite historical family, and I'm so excited to share this with you today. I first learned about the Herndon family on one of the three million times I took the Auburn Avenue walking tour. Okay, that's an exaggeration, but honestly, I became best friends with the guide. I would usually drive him back to his car at the end, and I didn't know then that one day I would volunteer to lead that tour, but I did know that the story of Alonzo, Adrian, Jesse, and Norris was one that stuck with me forever. Later, when I finally got to tour the Herndon Mansion, it only made my love grow stronger. I'm going to try and do this chronologically, sort of weaving in and out of each family member's lives as their time in history comes. Every now and then we're going to get a little off track, so bear with me. It's 1858, and this year an illegal slave ship would hit the shores of Jekyll Island off the Georgia coast, bringing 400 enslaved Africans from the Congo River. The ship was chartered by southern men angered at the idea that they must get their human capital domestically when it was so much cheaper for them to import. The story in itself could be its own episode, but I just want to set the stage here in Georgia. At this time, slavery is still propelling the southern economy, and the rumblings of secession are rising across the south. On a 150-acre farm in Social Circle, Georgia, 45 miles east of the newborn city of Atlanta, Alonzo Franklin Herndon was born. His mother, Sophony, was enslaved and fathered two children by her master, Frank Herndon. Frank also fathered children with her sister and maintained a white wife and several quote-unquote legitimate children. Alonzo was the eldest and his brother Thomas was born two years later. When the Civil War ends in 1865, Alonzo is seven years old. His mother, brother, and maternal grandparents are freed and then sent away by Frank. This was a dark time. Like most other newly emancipated African Americans in rural areas, there is little to no work, there is no food, families are trying to find each other. It was really bleak. The Herndons mainly worked as sharecroppers, which kept them at a level very close to their formerly enslaved state. Alonzo helped farm with his family, but he also sold peanuts, molasses, and axle grease to provide for his family. As the Herndons eked out a living, a baby girl was being born in Augusta, Georgia. Adrian Elizabeth was born in 1869, the daughter of a formerly enslaved mother named Martha, who was now a seamstress and domestic servant, and George Stevens, who left the family when she was very young. Her nickname was Addie, and at the age of two, the family would move to Savannah, Georgia, when her mother married Archibald McNeil. This marriage gave Addie two half-siblings, Jenny and Willie. In Savannah, she attended the West Broad Street School, where John Wesley Dobbs also attend much later on. Um, And this was the first public elementary school for black children in Savannah. Quick side note, this building is now the Ships to Sea Museum. They really do not properly showcase its school history at all, but I still think it's worth visiting um, just to be in a historic space. While Adrienne was a student there, her love of acting and drama were clear to everyone around her. 
1886, at the age of 17, she would leave Savannah for Atlanta. A decade prior, Alonzo had also left his hometown on a winding path that would also lead him to the city. In 1878, with $11 in his pocket, Alonzo traveled from Social Circle to Sonoya, so kind of from east to south, where he would learn the barber trade. And the barber trade was kind of a proverbial golden ticket for black men because it was only done by black men and almost all white men were accustomed to getting their haircuts and shaves by black men during slavery. So it's kind of hard to explain, but after the war, essentially there's an industry created for black barbers to become business owners. Once Alonzo learned the skill, he moves to Jonesboro and he opens his first shop. He would spend five years in Jonesboro establishing his business, and then he would temporarily live in Rome, Georgia, and even Chattanooga before coming to Atlanta in 1883. His first stop is the barbershop of William Hutchins, one of the very few free people of color that lived in Atlanta before the war. Hutchins had purchased his freedom in 1852, and he operated his own business. He hired Herndon as a journeyman, and um, Alonzo spent four years working under him before he left again to open his own shop. While Alonzo was working at the shop, Adrian arrives in Atlanta to go to Atlanta University. She's a student in what was called the Normal Department, which is really like a four-year course of study that prepared students for work as public school teachers. I spoke about Atlanta University in more detail in episode five, um, which is titled Gaines Hall, but it's really kind of about the university as well. The school was started by white northern missionaries, and so the founders and professors in Adrian's time were all white. The idea behind schools like this was to provide a place to educate African Americans and then, especially for teachers, have them go out and teach in schools around the state of Georgia and the South. The university also ran a grammar school, a prep school, the normal department that I just mentioned, and they had an agricultural program. While Adrian is enrolled, her stepdad passes, and they had been living, you know, not wealthy, but definitely upper middle class life in Savannah. So when her stepdad dies, her mother is forced to go back to work and she's unable to help pay for schooling. Adrienne, though, was able to pay her way through college um, with financial aid, and then she worked every summer in rural schools teaching. During her time at Atlanta University, there was no official drama department, but that did not stop her from performing and sharing her love of the arts. Adrienne would actually become very well known for her elocution and often performed by reading poems or essays. During her 1891 college graduation, she performs uh, an essay and she also has a vocal solo. Both were performed in the Sanctuary of Friendship Baptist Church. After graduation, she gets a summer teaching job in Athens, Georgia, where the Georgia State College for Negroes had just opened its doors. Her assignment was, however, temporary. She comes back to Atlanta and gets a job at the newly built Gray School, which was in the Fifth Ward. At this time, this was considered the best black elementary school in the city. But at this school, and generally in this time, once a woman is married, they were expected to stop working. When Alonzo and Adrian married on October 31st, 1893, she would do just that. When Alonzo had left Hutchins' shop, he opened his own inside the Markham Hotel. It would be destroyed by fire in 1896, so he went and opened his famous Petrie Street Herndon Baths, later named the Crystal Palace. 
Inside were crystal chandeliers, gold gilded mirrors, mahogany doors. It was the place for the white movers and shakers of Atlanta to get their hair cut, and even a midday refresh in the basement level baths. The New York World quoted it as the best barbershop in the South, and Herndon employed almost 75 barbers. What I love about Adrian and Alonzo is that every account of their marriage states that she made sure he knew her career was important to her and she needed his support. During the summers of her teaching career, she would train in Boston and New York. And there's a quote attributed to her um, that I love, and she says, quote, The footlights have beckoned me since I was a little child, and I simply must respond. End quote. In July of 1897, she gave birth to a son, Norris Bumstead Herndon. But that did not slow her down. She would just bring him with her to school. I think Norris actually learned to walk when he was in Boston. In 1902, she graduates with a degree in general culture from the School of Expression in Boston, Massachusetts. The following year, she would get another degree from the same school, this time in public reading. In 1904, she finally made her professional stage actress debut in Boston in a one-woman reading of Shakespeare's Anthony and Cleopatra. And guys, there are 22 roles in that play. She performed every single one. The name on the playbill read Anne Dubignon, her stage name. And no one seemed to know she was black. And this is where I realized I forgot to mention the complexion of both Alonzo and Adrian. Alonzo having a white father and a very light-skinned mother at times easily passed for a white man. And Adrian's mother and father were both very fair-skinned. Her dad actually left the family to live as a white man, um, and she could easily pass for a white woman. This is a really complex topic for another day, but most of Atlanta's black elite at the turn of the century were of a lighter complexion. So here she is. She's finally living her dream in Boston. She characterizes herself to the press as being from, quote, a South Carolina family of French and Creole descent, end quote. She was kind of funny about lying because of the history with her father, but she also didn't really advertise her race. W.E.B. Du Bois actually wrote that Thomas Dixon, who was the author of The Klansman, if you don't know what that is, go back to episode 54, um, but that guy actually offered Adrian the leading role because he had no idea she was black. And the thing is, though, her career never took off, and we don't really know why. There's no hard evidence, there's not like some official thing that we can read, but the idea is that maybe critics finally caught wind of her racial identity, and she would soon return home to Atlanta. By 1905, Alonzo owns several barbershops, and he's already begun investing in real estate. He's approached by the Reverend of Wheat Street Baptist, shout out episode 12, who recently formed the Atlanta Benevolent and Protective Association, and he was in dire need of capital. Herndon agrees to buy the organization for $140, and with the acquisition and reorganization of two other companies, he forms Atlanta Life Insurance. It would go on to become the country's largest black-owned stockholder life insurance company, and by 1940, it would have $12 million in assets and operations in nine states. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We're still in 1905. And 1905 is just one year before 1906. And if you've listened to episode 19, you'll know that that was the year of Atlanta's deadly race riot. And I know I've mentioned a lot of previous episodes today, but this all goes to show you that the history of the city is completely intertwined. The 1906 race riot devastated Atlanta, and especially the Herndons. 
Alonzo's crystal palace was heavily damaged and one of his young workers was killed. Alonzo himself was just happened to leave early that day and they had killed a barber who had a shop across the street from him. Their son Norris was uh, eight or nine and while they considered whether they should even stay in Atlanta, they sent Norris to Philadelphia for an entire semester of school. Alonzo and Adrian were very much a power couple at this point. They were pretty wealthy. Their philanthropic efforts were felt across Atlanta's black community. They had provided funds, a building, and teacher salary for the first public black kindergarten. They were active in the Niagara Movement and then later the NAACP, and they supported charities and organizations. It was these things that tied them to Atlanta and kept them in the city after witnessing this horrible act of racial violence. With this renewed commitment to Atlanta, they decided to build their dream home. The family had previously lived in a boarding house first, which I think I mentioned earlier. Uh, Then they lived on the campus of Atlanta University, uh, and then they moved into Bumstead Cottage, which was built in the mid-1880s by a past president of the university. In 1908, the Herndons broke ground on their new house on University Place, just one street away from the campus where Adrian taught amazing thing about this home is that it was designed by Adrian from top to bottom with no architect's help and she wasn't a trained architect either. All of the work on the house with the exception of the electrical and the plumbing system was done by African-American craftsmen, trades, and laborers. My very favorite part of the house is that the roof was designed to be flat so it could be used as a performance venue for students to act in place. She also decorated the inside filling the house with pieces from their travels And in the dining room, she did a five-image painted panel along the top of the wall that depicts Alonzo's rise from slavery to Atlanta's first black millionaire. And guys, this house is still there, and it looks almost exactly as it did when it was built. I will put a link in the show notes for information on how to visit. Sadly, every good story has to have some heartbreak. And the heartbreak came to the Herndon family in 1910. Just as the house was nearing completion, Adrienne fell ill. They traveled to Philadelphia to be seen by specialists, but the disease hit quickly, and months later, she had passed on April 6, 1910, at just 40 years old. She was only able to live in the house for a few months. The cause of death was Addison's disease, which even today is considered rare and hard to understand. Norris was only 13 years old, and Alonzo was left a widow. Now, we all know men don't usually fare too well being single after having been married for over a decade, and Alonzo was still considered very much a catch. It turns out that the wife of W.E.B. Du Bois' doctor reached out to Herndon before a trip to Atlanta uh, to make a connection between two black elite families, one from Chicago, one from Atlanta, and this woman's best friend was Jesse Gillespie. About a year and a half after Adrian's death, Alonzo is engaged to Jesse. Their wedding was in May of 1912, and a Fun story that I read is that their wedding date actually had to be moved because of the sinking of the Titanic. They had had their own uh, European honeymoon sort of cruise, uh, not on the Titanic, but because the Titanic sunk, they had to shift their wedding a few days. Alonzo and Jesse would be married for 15 years and continue the Herndon philanthropy in Atlanta. Jesse was very much active in community affairs, um, even with organizations that Adrian had been supportive of, and Alonzo appointed her to the Atlanta Life Insurance Board of Directors, where she was the first woman to hold that position. When Alonzo Herndon died in 1927, he split his estate evenly between his wife and his son, and he appointed Norris head of Atlanta Life Insurance, and Jesse was elected the first female vice president. 
She served in that capacity until her death in 1947. So let's finish today's story with Norris. His father, a man that was born enslaved with just one year of education, was able to provide his son with a life he never had. Norris was cosmopolitan and traveled extensively, even to Europe. Alonzo took him along to the Niagara Movement meetings, to the NAACP meetings, and he was around W.E.B. Du Bois and other black leaders of that time in Atlanta. But he and his father didn't always see eye to eye. I mean, as every kid and parent, right? Norris shared his mother's love of the theater, and he wanted to pursue that theater career so bad and not take over the family business. After graduating from Atlanta University, just like his mom, in 1919, he decided to get a master's degree at Harvard, which made his dad very happy. Ebony Magazine described Norris as, quote, the millionaire nobody knows, end quote. Despite being the most eligible African-American bachelor, he was never connected to any woman. And that's because he was gay. According to most sources, this was known and open fact among his family and most of his business peers. One of those things that everyone knew, but no one said it out loud. There was an unwritten code of sorts at the time that you could be who you were as long as you still acted according to societal code and you did not bring gossip or disgrace to the small black elite community. All that I have read says that Alonzo knew his son's sexuality and was generally as supportive as a parent in the 1920s was going to be. When Atlanta Life was put in Norris's hands, the company held $1 million in assets. Norris led the company for half a century. Through the Spanish flu death claims, through the Tulsa race massacre claims, and quietly funding most of the 1960s civil rights movement. When he died in 1977, he left the company holding $100 million in assets. He never married, never had children, but he did set up a trust in order to preserve their family home and make it available for future generations to see this example of black wealth and excellence. Today, you can tour the Herndon home. It still sits on its perch on Diamond Hill. Now it's next to the new football stadium. If you want to visit Alonzo, Adrian, Jesse, or Norris, they are all buried in Southview Cemetery, which has its own episode coming soon. The original Atlanta Life Insurance buildings are still on Auburn Avenue. You can go see those as well. And a few buildings from Atlanta University still remain today, part of Morris Brown College. In this research, I also found out there is a Herndon Cemetery out in Social Circle, where his mother and father are both buried. If you need me, I'm going to be planning my road trip out there to take a look. And there you have it, the story of Atlanta's Herndon family. Thank you all for listening to the podcast, for rating and reviewing, but most importantly for sharing this with your friends and family. Remember, if you'd like more bonus content, you can head over to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash archive Atlanta, and you get two mini episodes um, every month with more Atlanta history. Hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll see you next week.